You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, I'm Andrew Child, and welcome to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast, a companion piece to the Routledge Press publication, 50 Key Stage Musicals, which is available for purchase by going to routledge.com or clicking the link below in today's show description. Today's episode focuses on Chapter 8, Porgy and Bess, and with us today is performer, writer, and educator Devon Tynes. Devon Tynes is a pathbreaking artist whose work not only encompasses a diverse repertoire from early music to new commissions by leading composers, but also explores the social issues of today. A performer at the intersection of many histories, cultures, and aesthetics, he is engaged in work that blends opera, art song, contemporary classical music, spirituals, gospel, and songs of protest as a means to tell a deeply personal story of perseverance that connects to all of humanity. Tynes is co-creator of The Black Clown, a music theater experience commissioned and premiered by the American Repertory Theater. Tynes is Musical America's 2022 Vocalist of the Year and a recipient of the 2020 Sphinx Medal of Excellence. He is a graduate of the Juilliard School and Harvard University, where he also serves as guest lecturer. Devon, thank you so much for being here. Do you, as a Black opera singer, as a composer, do you naturally have any sort of connection to or relationship with the show in question today with Porgy and Bass? Very much. Um, you know, I, I've been blessed to make a particular career in a direction that pretty directly engages Black identity and many different aspects of claiming one's identity in various spaces. Um, and just a little more context, um, I, I'm often misconstrued as some sort of activist or somebody that's trying to center the Black voice, mm -hmm. when in actuality, I like to think of it in a more expansive way that I'm just an artist trying to engage who I am. And if that happens to you know, connect to certain political uh, ideas or social contexts where engaging my Black identity is seen as political, then that seems to be a byproduct rather than my own intention. But um, that being said, and having done that kind of work, Porgy and Bess has always existed in kind of the negative relief of my 
career. You know, it kind of creates the other space that uh, I don't tend to inhabit. And that's partly because I think I'm continuing to try to square what Porgy and Bess is. Um, I first came to know it, you know, I think as many people had listening to the song Summertime, you know, that kind of Mm -hmm. indelible American classic that um, many people have engaged in many different contexts and versions and different singers, Um, you know, that being the quote unquote hit single of the opera. Um, And then, you know, as a younger person and understanding, oh, this is from an opera that, you know, has an entirely black cast written by legendary American composer George Gershwin. Um, When I was younger, I I was deeply in love with Rhapsody in Blue. I was a real nerd and had like six different recordings and liked different pianists interpretation of different parts. But um, I had never really understood the entire, you know, bigger work of Porgy and Bess until a lot later. And you come to find out that um, Summertime is not sung by the title character, which I think a lot of people make the assumption it is. It's sung at the very beginning of the show by a character, a secondary character named Clara. And then you come to find out that Bess is actually um, a very complicated heroine who is addicted to some sort of substance called happy dust. And there's various interpretations of what that could be. Um, And that her, you know, counterpart, Porgy, is a crippled man who is, um, you know, forsakenly or forlornly in love with Bess. And Porgy and Bess is actually the story of a tragedy of the inability for this relationship between two, um, you know, hindered people in various ways to exist or to actually hold their relationship. It's a very sad story of, you know, the death of a possibility. And that is cast against the backdrop of a large um, seaside community, a Black community, you know, in in the rural uh, mid-Atlantic region, essentially. And my association And my association with that piece um, continues to try to contend with what does it mean that this is the only narrative that is within the operatic canon in which Black people are called for as the performers of that piece? Mm -hmm. And what does it mean for us to try to create work that counterbalances or counters that narrative? So, and I mean, you called it like a negative relief. Would you say, is it fair to say that Porgy and Bess is something that your work is inherently responding to as this sort of standalone in the operatic canon? In a way, in an inadvertent way, you know? Um, Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Do you think that there is a continued future of producing Porgy and Bess in... American opera or in global opera at large? I think that there is a possible future for the production of Porgy and Bess. I mean, it will definitely persist within arts institutions, if only from a financial standpoint, which is a quite fascinating aspect of the show in and of itself. Um, It continues to be something that sells out on opera seasons around the world and is always seen as a, you know, deeply dependable financial success. So for the various contexts in which nonprofit arts want to be successful in financial realms, Porgy and Bess will continue to persist simply because of its uh, fiscal viability. But for its artistic viability, 
I think it's important to continue to re-engage the subject matter of things that have made it to canon by contextualizing it within modern perspectives and modern aesthetics. Um, some pieces of work that have existed and are beloved within the canon continue to bear that kind of interrogation, like the Magic Flute or like Don Giovanni. Um, there are other works that might lend themselves to that kind of interrogation, um, like Rigoletto or Traviata, you know, dealing with other human and mental health aspects. Um, but Porgy and Bess seems to exist in a sort of um, stasis. You know, its setting and its score is is very particular and its mm -hmm. music seems to be of a particular time and aesthetic. But I don't think, or at least to my knowledge, and I, my knowledge is not exhaustive, mm -hmm. um, I'm aware of a large-scale production that really takes into account how do we tell this story today? So I'm quite interested personally, maybe even <laughs> to creatively produce one day or be a part of making a poor game best that situates that community and that situation in a context that is actually more real to Black life currently and actually holds those characters in a certain nuance and specificity that I don't think many productions allow it. I mean, the last few productions of Porgy and Bess I've witnessed have done the tragedy that I think a lot of other productions to other operas do, which mm -hmm. is to simply mount the work, to simply put it on a stage and have it realized for its most um, surface and base possibilities or intentions and not trying to think, well, what is it to engage these kinds of stories and psychologies today? I think we're at a very special inflection point in cultural society where we can't exactly be um, nebulous or anonymous about why we are telling stories. So just as any piece of canon needs to be re-engaged with a certain sensitivity and specificity, Porgy and Bess needs that as well. So when you talk about productions of uh, this piece that you've seen or that you, that you engaged with, were you, I'm not sure about the timeline here, but would you have been at Harvard at the ART when they were mounting their production that eventually went on to Broadway? Um, I was not around when that production okay. was being made, no. Okay, but was that a production that that you caught or that you saw either in Cambridge or later in the Broadway run? No, that existed okay. before my even deeper understanding of what the piece was as a whole. You know, uh -huh. I knew that there were certain popular songs and I knew that it was amazing that Audra McDonald would be taking on those songs and of course hearing, you know, her performance of those things. But knowing that, you know, the wonderful Diane Paulus had translated it into another context, but not having even engaged the piece more depthfully at that time to even understand what she might have done. Mm. And then is the most recent production at the Metropolitan Opera, is that one of the ones that you have engaged with at all? Very much. I've seen that production in many different contexts. Um, it went around in Europe before it ended up at the Met. Mm -hmm. And so I've seen it in, you know, various casts and various timings. And um, it persists as an example of what I'm talking about. So if you were to helm... Uh, production of Porgy and Bess um, in 2022 or in 2025 or in 2035, what would you say is sort of in the front of your brain when you are starting to take on that process? What are your priorities? What are your major questions? 
my major questions are what is the essence, the core essence of that story in the relationships that are presented between community and individual? And how does that connect to the current identities of communities and individuals that are in ancestry or in lineage with those characters? How do those storylines, you know, with respect to race, because the story is very specifically, even litigiously in the score connected to race, how did those aspects of the story still play with or against the identities of that lineage today? So it would involve a lot of conversation with Black people of many different contexts, people that are exposed to the piece, people that have, you know, more socio-historical knowledge, people that work in the dramaturgical context within theater to really excavate why is this story necessary for being told? What service can it do to the communities it connects to? And how is it actually moving a conversation of engagement of those particular dire situations, you know, addiction and um, bodily harm? How are we holding those things with care and with the intention of moving people forward? Mm. And would you say, are those questions are those priorities are those ideals are those usually coming into the room with you on the works that you are working on or are those sort of specialized to addressing something that is from the 1920s um that is something i try to walk into a room with every single time i mean it's something that's been able to evolve and, you know, a way of working that I've been able to beautifully develop with colleagues and have discovered from other artists that I appreciate. And just the simple notions of what is the reason we are telling this story and what work is the telling of that story doing in the world? A pretty simple um, way of diagnosing, you know, the efficacy of a project. Why are we telling this story and what work is it doing in the world? So I'd love to sort of turn those two questions uh, back at you, if you don't mind. And would you be able to sort of walk us through the answer to those questions or your attempted answer to those questions with um, your work on The Black Clown? Like, mm -hmm. what were you doing? Why were you doing it? And what was the effect you were looking for on the audience and the world as a whole? Definitely. I mean, seeing as, you know, the creation of Black Clown was an over an eight-year process, there's a lot there, and we could wow. talk for hours about all the implications of those things. But put in a somewhat simplified way, um, the original impetus for telling the story, the most personal um, answer to why the story was being told, was um, when I encountered that poem, I saw something I needed to say to people that I didn't know I needed to say and put in a way that I didn't know it was possible to say it. The way was extremely succinct. The way was also very poetic, but also very encompassing of the entire context. You know, um, growing up in rural Northern Virginia in a sort of um, preppy horse country context, mm -hmm. and then going to Harvard University as a young black man from a certain socioeconomic, then going to Harvard as a young black man from a certain socioeconomic um, context, I was 
finding myself constantly in situations where I felt treated in a way that was irrespective of my larger historical context. And I had come to the idea that if people actually understood and held the weight of American history as it pertains to Black people, then people would actually treat minorities and Black people better. So when I read that poem, I said, this is what I need to say and have communicated to as many white people and people within the United States or beyond as possible, because with the understanding of broader context and history, then there can be some sort of connection to empathy. And I quickly realized in sharing that poem with family and friends and colleagues that this was not something I needed to say alone. You know, Langston Hughes essentially wrote a manual for the expression of this broader history for people to pick up and engage. And I took it as my raison d'etre with that piece to try to pump it out to as many people as possible, which is why that poem and that show takes the form of a dazzling musical. You know, what part of theater performance do we have that is the most ubiquitous and most spreadable than musical theater? Um, so that is a little bit of the why is this story being told? And then the what work is this story doing in the world, um, you know, that that exists on a spectrum from the personal to the more universal and working from the personal, the work that it's doing is giving a real place and a name to feelings and um, inquiries that I personally have had, friends and colleagues have had, um, but also the ability to share that opportunity for connection and catharsis with larger minority communities that may not have been provided that space, especially in a commercial theater context. So the work that I think the Black Clown is doing in the world is um, offering a space and an option for acknowledgement, offering a space for people to feel seen and understood and even more so contextualized so that they can also feel as empowered as I did to stand up in, you know, the glory of my current existence based on the history of my ancestry and knowing that it, and knowing that a brilliant ancestor, Langston Hughes, was already trying to set that sort of communication forth, was trying to give us a, a blueprint as it were to give us a blueprint as it were to engaging our broader history so that we can have some sort of um, possibility of empathy and way of walking forward this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger. Where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do you think with all of that in mind and all of that considered, would you count the Black Clown in its initial run and then a later remount, would you count that as successful in those goals? Very much, but also it the thing with those goals is they're 
things to be revisited. You know, those things are not um, stuck. Those things are not things where you <laughs> can check a box and say, oh, we did it. You know, as people change, as history changes, as context continues to grow and change, so do the possible answers to those questions. And so do the possible boundaries of what your intentions were originally. And that's kind of the beauty of anything, right? Of being alive, of being able to self-reflect and self-assess in order to think about how to move forward. I wouldn't want to be judged by the rubrics I held by for myself. I wouldn't want to be judged by the rubrics I held for myself, you know, two months ago, let alone years ago. Mm. But it's one thing to evaluate, you know, here's where we were. We tried to do it with as much integrity and intention as possible. And here's now what we can do based on what we now have learned and where we currently are. Do you feel like from eight years ago to now, your rubrics for yourself and for your work have shifted and changed? Deeply. Do you have any specific thoughts about ways that they've changed or just, you know, they're very different now? Um, I mean, you know, it might, it might take, it might take four years to talk about eight years of change, but, and that's trying to give the cliff notes, but I, I guess I could give one particular example of a change uh, in a way of working. Um, a very pivotal moment in the development of the Black Clown was in our second staged workshop, where we tried out a staging for uh, the song 300 Years. And that portion of the poem um, is kind of in Langston Hughes's conception, a portal back in time looking at the beginnings of Black oppression within America. So slavery, essentially. Mm -hmm. And it was very necessary to, in some way, represent that time on stage. Um, we had a lot of inspiration from the imagery of Carol Walker, who looks at those periods in sort of grotesque and finite ways. And we wanted to understand, you know, how can we bring some of the horrificness of this context to life? And what we found, which was a complete surprise, but looking back on it now it just seems, you know, idiotic that it was even a surprise to myself, was, you know, asking Black people to embody the actions of slavery on stage is a deeply traumatic act if it's not properly invited and contextualized for those people, you know? Mm -hmm. To be assumptive that people would want to or be able to put their bodies in those contexts that are in lineage with some of the darkest oppression of the train of human history has real effect. And I think in my own, you know, neophyte nature of being a theater maker, um, you kind of dream up what something can be or what something can look like. And in terms of the growth or change of my own values, I at that time didn't consider as depthfully what it meant to ask people to bring those visions and imaginings to life. So there was a very pivotal moment in which we had to slow down and think, you know, these actors, these incredible performers are not pawns. They're not people that we are having, you know, enact some sort of plan to tell the story. But in fact, they are our partners in telling this story. And we all need to be in a community and a compliance and an open communication about safety and what it means to invite people to tell certain aspects of narratives. So that's just one aspect of, you know, how... 
Um, I hope my own sensitivity and work can continue to grow, which is being respective of the individuals and collaborators with which I interact so that we can make things that are responsible and healthy and intentional. Mm-hmm. I think that is so interesting because I remember as an audience member coming to see the Black Clown, uh, it was accompanied by, and I don't remember the exact wording, but one of the most specific and thoughtful uh, sort of content warnings that I've ever, and to this day, seen for a show um, that had very much specificity about what we were about to see and the moments that could be uh, potentially harmful or triggering um, to audience members. Was that something that you and the rest of the artistic team had a hand in sort of this audience care that sort of comes off of what you were just sort of talking about? Oh, most definitely. I mean, you know, the work of contextualizing that show continued to be um, its own train of development while we were creating the piece, and especially when it was in final production. Um, And how one engages the audience, you know, um, working with my brilliant collaborator, director Zach Winokur, um, we've come into a way of working in which the interaction between the stage and the audience is actually a material of the show. It's not a happenstance, you know, um, occurrence, but actually trying to judge for or prepare for what sort of situations emotionally and physically you're inviting an audience into or that you are creating actually is the material of the storytelling. Now, I know that in some commercial and musical theater contexts, you know, you're thinking about how to place a button or how to, you know, drum up excitement at a certain place. And I'd like to think we're trying to think in those directions, but in a somewhat deeper, if not more sensitive way, because the Black Clown is all about juxtaposition. I mean, it's in the text, you know, um, strike up the music, let it be gay, only in song can a clown have his day, 300 years in the cotton and the cane. Those two images deeply juxtaposed. One is very joyful and open and sprightly, and you're inviting the audience to be having a good time. And then you literally punch them in the stomach by saying, oh, this is contextualized within, you know, years, hundreds of years of enslavement. So in the text, Hughes plays with the audience's comfortability. And then in translating that to the stage, our material of engagement and storytelling is a more three-dimensional embodied version of playing with the audience's comfortability and expectations. So how you contextualize that experience before an audience enters, you know, that playground essentially of their own physicality and emotions is very important. Mm. I'd love to know a little bit more about how you, when you are specifically in the role of performer, sort of bring these ideas of contextualization into the room with you. Oh, like, I'd love to know something like um, you're doing right now, um, Anthony Davis's X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X with Detroit Opera. Um, Are these considerations that sort of come into the room when you're in that role as well? Yeah, I mean, we we haven't, you know, delved into that full process just yet. But in terms of my own personal preparation, um, I've been very inspired by director Robert O'Hara's take on how he'd like to position the show, which is that X, you know, being a, an important and deeply seminal figure for America. 
American history. And the opera will tell his story in a sort of historical way. X can also operate as an Uberman, as an everyman. You know, that I think the larger legacy of Malcolm X is that his work and what he modeled can carry forward. And so preparing that show has also meant my own connecting to what his intentions were and kind of distilling, you know, what was he actually trying to say and model about a Black person or a person from any community doing to support and protect their community. Um, So in terms of building the larger context for that, I've actually been engaged in a pretty long process um, that I kind of call my meta preparation for the show. Um, So when I was invited to do the role of Malcolm X, I was also invited to have an artist residency with Detroit Opera. And in thinking about what I wanted that residency to be about, I wanted to, you know, take reality as it was. Um, I'd be playing a character that was very near and dear um, to Detroit. And, you know, his life was very much embedded in that city. But I was coming as a performer, as an outsider. So I didn't want to make a situation in which I showed up did a few shows of Malcolm X, this character that is deeply embedded within this community's history, and then leave and not be respective of what is the purpose or, you know, the work that my engagement within this story, within this community is doing. So I made the thrust of the residency getting to know Detroit. I've visited Detroit every month, month and a half over the past year or so, and wanted to make that engagement about getting to know the broader Black arts community and various other entrepreneurs within Detroit and just understanding what are people doing to keep the culture of Detroit alive? What are people actually doing to breed support for community within Detroit? And how can I actually make organic connections to those places at many scales so that when I further engage that community by telling this story or this idea of an everyman that's engaged with community protection and support, it can actually be grounded in knowing the people that make the context in which the show is happening true and connected. Um, And it's led to many beautiful things. I mean, I've gotten to know certain people, um, an amazing artist named Jessica Caremore, who is a spoken word artist, um, who's very much a node of the Black cultural life within Detroit. And getting to know her over months and months and months, we've collaborated on work now that has been seen internationally. And her essentially writing around the idea of why do I still need to prove my humanity today? Um, Another aspect has been getting to you know, the Osborne Neighborhood Alliance, which is a really incredible clearinghouse for smaller Black community-led organizations. You know, people trying to install solar panels in their communities that have been left behind by the larger system, or trying to raise money to put in a speed bump so that their children can play safely, or trying Mm -hmm. to install community gardens in places where, you know, the city and state's revenue has not exactly been um, abundant, if not apparent. Um, But getting to know these organizations by multiple visits and saying, you know, what can I actually do to offer you anything I potentially have? And that might come in the way of collaboration, um, as I've done with Jessica, but also with students from the Detroit School of the Arts over time. And how can that even lead to potential financial support? You know, um, bringing a show to a certain context and uh, co-opting a story is not doing the right thing unless you can say, well, how about I personally model what X was trying to do, at least in the capacity that I personally have? Would you say that... 
I don't know. I don't, I don't want to make assumptions or put words in your mouth, but now you've sort of walked us through two processes where years and years or months and months of research and consideration are being put into your work. Is that something that you feel like we should be seeing more of in American theater, in American opera, um, or in commercial theater, commercial opera worldwide? I hope so. I mean, I don't want to be assumptive about anyone's process, but Mm -hmm. um, I have found the most depthful and rewarding experiences are the ones that have taken time. They're the ones that have taken, you know, consideration and deep conversation with colleagues to understand what really is the impetus of this work and how is it simply existing in a world in a way that doesn't do harm. And I think if people continue to ask those questions in whatever processes and scales they have available to them, we'll continue to make good work. Mm, I guess I feel like that is an important sort of caveat in there, whatever scales and processes are available. Because when we talk about putting work in to this performance for months and months or for years and years, I'm sure there are people out there who are listening who are saying, oh yeah, wouldn't that be great? But all they can think about is the money and the resources that that takes. Um, But would you say, um, we can kind of go back, I guess, a little bit to the Black Clown, because I know um, X that opera hasn't been performed yet. Would you say coming soon, coming soon. Would you say that with the black clown, for instance, was there payoff for having a eight years long process, like in audience responses, in feedback? Deeply. Um, you know, if it's possible, I, I think iterative process is really critical in that you create something, you show it or, you know, kick the tires on it in context that um, allow real and healthy critique. And then you can continually go back to the drawing board. But, you know, the show that we had three years into the process, Mm -hmm. I think, was deeply inadequate to the show that we had eight years into the process because we did go through all of those natural stumbling blocks and, you know, incubations and opportunities to learn about what our deeper values were. Time tends, at least in my experience, to breed depth. Mm. And was, with that process, was there ever a point where you sort of hit a wall or you sort of said, maybe the act of putting in this on stage is just is not going to do what we set out to do, what we wanted to do? Not exactly a wall, but also, but a place of not knowing which direction to go. Um, You know, this idea of how do we dramatize this work in a way that honors, uses, you know, aesthetic that breeds through his own life in the Harlem Renaissance, but also the imagery that he calls upon. How do you bring that in front of people in a way that respects the context from which the poem is happening, but also further moves it into a language that um, is engaging the subject matter? Wait, wait, let me let me rewind. So like sure. new answer to this question. Can you just ask it once more? Yeah, sure. At any point, in this years-long process, did you sort of hit a wall or come to a place where you were saying, this is not doing what we set out to do or not answering the questions we set out to answer? 
We didn't exactly hit a wall, but we did come to a place of not knowing exactly what direction to go. And I think it came from when we began to lean too much into the caricaturization of the piece. You know, there is a lot of Audvillian language. There is a lot of, um, you know, potential zaniness or goofiness that can come from engaging that material metaphorically. And when we leaned too far into the kind of, um, you know, symbolism of the piece, as opposed to the literalness with the words, it veered into undercutting the depth of what Hughes was actually trying to say. And I think, you know, bringing my friend collaborator, Zach Winokur on stage and kind of or sorry, bringing my friend and collaborator Zach Winokur into the process um, and that being a huge part of the growth of our relationship together made us start working in this way of what is the integrity of the text? You know, we're not actually trying to create some sort of situation in which this text can exist. We're trying to simply realize what is there. Um, we came to a deeper value of not wanting to put anything on Hughes's text. I mean, we did that literally by not adding or changing any words, but we realized that we needed to do that aesthetically by not trying to interpret what is being said, but rather just present it as it is and trust mm. the text. Wow. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today about all of this. Thank you. It's been great. And thank you, listeners, for joining us as well. Please make sure to purchase a copy of 50 Key Stage Musicals by visiting Routledge.com or by clicking in today's show description. If you want to learn more about Porgy and Bess, please also review the links in the below description. I'm Andrew Child, and thank you for listening to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.